morning. If you're new, I'm Jamie. I am one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Grab one of the black ones and turn to page 856. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 57. So if you're new to the Bible, that means the little number 57 is where we'll pick up reading, top right-hand corner of the Black Bible. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll read the passage, ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll work our way through this passage a little bit at a time. It should take us around 45 minutes to make it through. So Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 57. This is the word of the Lord. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet 
in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. Would you bless its reading? Would you bless its hearing? And would you bless my preaching? I pray, Father, that you would preach a better sermon than the one I'm about to preach. That your people would hear what is right and true of the Lord Jesus Christ. To those who are afflicted, that they would be comforted. And to those who are comfortable, that they would be afflicted. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen. Why are you a Christian? Have you ever wondered this? Why are you a Christian? I don't mean what did God do to make you a Christian. I don't even mean what are the things that led to you becoming a Christian. I mean, why did God save you? What was God's purpose in showing mercy to you? Was it because you were better looking than other people? I mean, from my perspective, you guys look great, but I don't think that's the reason. Was it because you were smarter than others? Well, I think that's the case in some of you, but certainly not in the case in my case. Maybe God saved you because you, you have great taste. Well, by the mere fact that sometimes God saves Pittsburgh Steelers fans, we know that cannot be the case. It is not for taste or smarts for that reason. So what is it? God had to have a reason for saving you. God's purpose in showing mercy to you is connected to God's purpose for your life. God's purpose in saving you is connected to God's purpose for your life. It's an important question. In the beginning, God gave humans their purpose. He told the first man and the first woman to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And when our first parents rebelled against God's word, darkness invaded the human heart and they cast a shadow over the purpose of humankind. And every person since has went askew. Nearly every human heart since has had to wrestle with these great big existential questions. What is the meaning of my life? What is God's purpose for my life? And the world is a cold, dark place without a sufficient answer to that great question. There must be a reason why there is something rather than nothing. There must be a reason for human suffering other than things happen. Well, God has not left us without an answer. God tells us 
the reason for creating us and for showing mercy to us. And I hope by God's grace that you will see a little of that purpose before you in the passage that we're considering this morning. I hope that you will see a little more of God's glory displayed in Him showing mercy to sinners like us. And I hope, more than anything, that you will find joy and satisfaction in this merciful God and be encouraged to pursue His purpose for your life. Luke chapter 1 describes a remarkable period in human history. God has broken a 400-year-long silence and granted mercy to a lowly priest and to his barren wife and given them a child. The once mute Zechariah offers praise to God and a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And here God unfolds a little more of his big plan to redeem what is rightfully his and to save his people from their sin. Here's the big idea this morning. Because of the mercy of God in Christ, serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness, pointing others to him. Because of the mercy of God in Christ, serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness, pointing others to him. We'll have a look at verses 57 to 66 again, where we'll see God's tender mercy to Zechariah and to Elizabeth. Let's read verse 57 and 66 again. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. They would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, 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 no. He shall be called John. And they said to her, well, none of your relatives is called by this name. They made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid, up the, laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? And then Luke adds, for the hand of the Lord was with him. Zechariah is an elderly Backcountry priest chosen at random to serve in the temple. And while burning incense in the temple before the Lord, the angel Gabriel appears to him and tells him that he and his wife Elizabeth, although they're barren, will bear a son. They were to name him John. And they were told that many will rejoice at his birth, that he would be great before the Lord that he would be full of the Holy Spirit, and that he would be used by the Lord to draw God's people to repent and to prepare the way for the Messiah. Zechariah hears this, and he's incredulous. And like many of us, he should have, should have kept his mouth shut, but he didn't, and so he did. 
Zechariah doubted the word of God. And the angel made him mute. Zechariah returns home, somehow finds a way to communicate to his wife about this visit from the angel and the promise of God and that she's about to have a baby and Elizabeth conceives. And then they wait. That was nine months ago. We're not told, Luke doesn't tell us exactly how old Elizabeth is. Probably she was past the age of childbearing. Seems to be God's way. But I suspect no matter how old that she was, there was some level of nervousness when it came time to give birth to this baby. Giving birth is a very big deal. It's a big deal today. It's an even bigger deal in the first century. It's an even bigger deal if you're an older woman. And yet the Lord sustained Elizabeth, and she gave birth to a healthy baby boy. And as the angel had promised, many rejoice at his birth. In verse 58, we see the neighbors and relatives hear what the Lord had done for Zechariah and Elizabeth and the rejoicing before God. No doubt, Elizabeth had spent many years of her life praying for a baby. Maybe her friends and relatives would come over to Aunt Lizzie's house and she would make them tea and cookies. And she was happy to serve them, but all of the while seeing the little ones in her home and reminded her of what she didn't have. And yet she trusted the Lord. There would have been a stigma attached to her being barren. A stigma that her neighbors undoubtedly knew. Maybe they were too polite to talk about it to her. But now she has a baby. And so they're rejoicing with her. The whole neighborhood. And as was the custom, according to the law of Moses, they came to circumcise the male child on the eighth day. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God had made with his people Israel. And it seems that it had also become a a custom to name the child on the eighth day. And they planned to name this boy Zechariah Jr. after his father. But Mama says, no way. His name shall be called John. And they're confused by this. There's no one named John in this family. Where where is she getting this name? I relate to this. My wife has much better taste when it comes to naming children. So my kids better thank God that they're not answering to Manasseh or Whitfield or Bear, as the case may be. And apparently the relatives don't like Aunt Lizzie's answer. And so they motion to Zechariah for like a second opinion. And this is is a funny scene because they're motioning to Zechariah. The man's mute. He's not deaf. He can hear what's going on. But like maybe they're like leaning in and talking loud just because he can't speak. And they're motioning for him to come over. 
And you can sense a little bit of the frustration in Zechariah. In verse 63, in, in the Greek language, he is emphatic. He, I don't know, he grabs his iPad and he pulls up the notes app and he enlarges the font and types, his name is John. I'm not deaf. <laughs> you might be. You see, there's no more questioning God's word in Zechariah's heart anymore. He might not be able to talk. But the old priest is going to listen. The angel told me to name him John, and so John is his name. I won't doubt God's word. I already done that once. In verse 64, immediately his, his mouth is open, his tongue is loosed, and praise of God flings from his lips. We've, we've joked a little about Elizabeth enjoying the silence of her husband. No more complaining about honeydew lists and what's for dinner. But how great it must have been for her to hear the voice of her best friend for the first time in nine months. She has a baby in her lap and her husband leading worship in her living room and her relatives put in their place. This is the best day ever. Up to this point, people had talked about Zechariah and Elizabeth wondering probably what they had done to incur God's judgment on them. Refusing to give them a child. And now, you see, the people fear. Don't you just love how Luke walks us through the whole emotional response to God's work in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life? I was thinking about this again this morning. The whole neighborhood, Luke is telling us how the whole neighborhood is processing this testimony. First, they start with rejoicing with Elizabeth. Then they wonder. Then they fear. Then they talk. And then they ponder. And I don't want to read too much into this, but have you noticed a similar sort of response in your family and friends when God has done something magnificent in your life? Think back to when you became a Christian. Maybe at first, your friends and your relatives, they rejoiced with you. I'm really glad that you found something great in your life. And then that rejoicing became a wonder, wondering about you. And then maybe a little afraid. I mean, this just isn't like a fad. This just isn't something that she's into. This is her whole life. Then they talk about you when you're not around. But then we pray by God's grace that that experience in your life would get stuck in their head and they won't be able to let it go as they ponder what God is doing. Verse 66 says that they laid these things up in their hearts. It's Luke's way of saying that this thing God did left a lasting impression upon them. 
But he, they thought about it for long and wondered, what then will this child be? And then Luke adds, y'all, God's just getting started with this boy. God's just getting started. The hand of the Lord is with him. The whole point of this section of Luke 1 is to show the reader that God keeps his promises. Remember, this whole book was written to a man named Theophilus, that he would have certainty about the things he's heard. And here, Luke is giving Theophilus and us certainty, telling us that God keeps his promises, and he does so in his timing, in his way, for his glory. And when God fulfills his promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he does it in such a way that leaves no doubt only God could do this. He waits until Zechariah and Elizabeth are too old to have a baby and then gives them one. He makes them wait. In the same way he made Sarah wait. In the same way he made Rebecca wait. In the same way he made Rachel wait. In the same way he made Hannah wait. His timing is perfect. God will fulfill all that he has promised. I don't think it's by accident that all three matriarchs of God's covenant people and the mother of Israel's first prophet, all of them struggled to get pregnant. All of them forced to wait until God would fulfill his promise. So if you are waiting on something from the Lord, something you have prayed about for a long time, beloved, you're in good company. Trust the Lord. His timing, his way for his glory. Zechariah and Elizabeth are extremely important figures in salvation history. We leave them today. They fall off the pages of Scripture after chapter 1. But they are hugely significant. They represent God's covenant faithfulness to his chosen people. Elizabeth was barren, and the Lord showed great mercy to her. She is like Israel in her day, for Israel too was barren. Zechariah was shown great mercy. He was made mute for his unbelief, and in the great mercy of God, his tongue was loosed. He is like Israel in his day, for Israel too is mute. You see, centuries earlier, God had made a covenant with a man named Abraham. 
And from Abraham's lineage, God would make a people for himself. He would be their God, and they would be his people. They would serve him in holiness and righteousness. They would show and tell the nations of the world all about Yahweh, the one true God, what he is like. They were to live differently from all the other people, for God lived in their midst. Their purpose as a nation was to call all the other nations to come and to see this God and proclaim the wonders of the one true God and his grace in saving sinners. But rather than being separate from the nations, Israel became like the nations. They abandoned the true worship of the one true God and they worshiped idols. Much of your Bible is taken up with the Lord using the least severe means to draw his people to repent of their sins and to return to right true worship of him. And sometimes they do. And many times they do not. And yet God shows great mercy to his people, sending his only son on a rescue mission to save them. To do what Israel had not done. The Lord showing mercy to Zechariah and to Elizabeth is a microcosm of the Lord showing mercy to Israel. You see, by God's mercy, Elizabeth's barrenness becomes a child who will point to Jesus Christ, their Savior, God's full and final revelation of himself to the world. And by God's mercy, Zechariah's muteness becomes a prophecy about Jesus Christ, their Savior, the full and final revelation of God of himself to the world. These were all of the things that Israel was supposed to do. And had it. And this is what God is doing for them through Christ in their midst. This is what we see in the verses that follow. We see the tender mercy of God to Israel. Let's keep reading. Verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham and to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness, in righteousness, before him all our days. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies. Now, we talked about this before. Being filled with the Holy Spirit leads to praise of God. And that's what we see in Zechariah. He says, blessed, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. As a priest, Zechariah would have known his Bible. He knew the significance of the things that God was doing in his life and in the life of his son. 
Zechariah well understood the significance of God visiting and redeeming him and his wife. He knew that God's work in his life was bigger than just him and his wife. By the Holy Spirit, he could see that God was acting in salvation history to invade the barrenness and the muteness of his covenant people and to fulfill his promises that he had made to them. And he rejoices that God has not abandoned his people. That God visited them. God visited and redeemed them. The word redeem in verse 68 means to buy something back. To buy it back. God's people had turned from the Lord. And they had sold themselves short of his purpose for their life. They had sold themselves into a sort of slavery to sin. The Lord Jesus taught that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so the Lord sends the Redeemer, the Messiah, to purchase their freedom. In verse 69, the Redeemer is called the horn of salvation. Which is a picture drawn from the Old Testament that, that pictures the strength and power of an ox. Meaning that this Redeemer, by his strength and power, he will deliver God's people from her enemies. We're told that he will rise up out of the house of David, as was foretold by the prophets. And once again, Luke seeks to remind us that God keeps his word. He spoke by the prophets of old, and here is the fulfillment of those prophecies. Luke seems concerned to teaching Theophilus and us that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. The Lord is faithful. The Lord told the prophet Habakkuk, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will Surely come, it will not delay. So once again, Cornerstone, Pickle Baptist Church, I don't know what you're waiting for. I don't know the weights you've carried into this place today. But the Lord does. Perhaps you're waiting for healing. Perhaps you're waiting for reconciliation with a family member, with a friend. Maybe you're waiting for the Lord to save a loved one, a prodigal child. Maybe you're waiting for a ministry or a sense of purpose in your life. I want you to know, God has heard your prayers and he is never late in keeping his promises. We return briefly to something we considered last Lord's Day. Your assurance for tomorrow lies in the past. The Bible says that all of the promises of God find their yes 
in Jesus. So look to him, church. Look to Jesus as you wait. Fill your mind with the life and the ministry and the words of Jesus Christ. He is your yes. Verses 71 to 73, Zechariah gives us three reasons for the Lord visiting and redeeming his people. One, to save them from their enemies. Two, to show mercy. And then three, to remember his covenant that he had made with Abraham. The Lord Jesus Christ is the final and full fulfillment of all of these promises. Jesus saved his people from their enemies. Jesus showed the mercy God had promised to his people. And in Jesus, God has fulfilled the promises that God made to Abraham. Now, it's likely that those who heard Zechariah's prophecy would have understood what he says in verse 71 to mean that God was saving Israel from her political enemies. But this spirit-inspired prophecy means much more than political salvation. For in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, God redeemed his people from their ultimate enemies. Sin and death and the devil. So if you're new here, if you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. And it's very likely that you've considered the problems in your life a little differently than God has considered the problems in your life. Sickness and addiction and financial hardship, these are problems, big problems. And if you'd like, I'd love to talk to you about those problems. But you know, God wants you to know those problems, big as they are, are not your biggest problem. My non-Christian friend, your biggest problem is your sin against a holy and righteous God. That in your turning away from God, you have incurred the wrath of Almighty God. But the good news is that God has visited you today. In the words that we have read here today, God has visited you. He sent his son Jesus to show mercy to sinners just like you. Jesus lived without sin and willingly gave his life on the cross and for those who turn to Jesus Christ in faith, God takes their sin, places it on Jesus, and he suffers in their place. By his death and resurrection, gives them a new life, free from sin, the wrath of God, completely and forever satisfied in him. But not just that. Because Jesus lived without sin, God is pleased to those who turn to Jesus in faith to count Jesus' own faithfulness to them, to reckon them righteous like he was. Friend, if you've never confessed your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, do it today. After the service here, find me. 
Find one of the brothers around here. Talk to someone. Tell them you would like to become a Christian. We'll pray with you. And we'll help you get started down this life of freedom and joy. Church, in Jesus Christ, God remembered his covenant with Abraham. The way covenants work, blessing follows obedience to the terms of the covenant. And as we have already explored, Israel had not been obedient to the covenant. So rather than being blessed by God, they were under the curse of God. They were under the curse of breaking God's law. And so Jesus came to fix it. Jesus did what Israel didn't. Jesus is the true Israel. He kept the terms of God's covenant. And so all who turn to Jesus Christ are united to him. And because of what he did, as I just said, God the Father counts them faithful to the covenant because of Jesus. This is what happened when you, dear Christian, said, Lord Jesus, save me. Your unfaithfulness was washed away. And Christ's own faithfulness reckoned to you. All of the promises, all of the blessings of covenant keeping is in Christ. And since you've been united to him by faith, all the blessings of covenant keeping are yours. The blessings of God's purposes in verses 74 and 75 belong to every person united to Jesus Christ. You have been delivered from the hand of your enemies so that you can serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all your days. And so we return to the question we asked at the opening. Why are you a Christian? Why did God show mercy to you? Here's your answer. That you might serve the Lord fearlessly in holiness and righteousness before him forever. This is God's purpose in showing you mercy. This is the purpose of your life. Zechariah goes on to describe the particulars of John's purpose. But the question remains, what does it look like for me? I know what it looks like for John. I can read that and we will in a moment. But what does it look like for me to serve the Lord fearlessly in holiness and righteousness before him? Well, it looks a little different for all of us, depending on our station in life. It's going to look a little different for a doctor and for a teacher and for a factory worker and for a retiree. The particulars are different, but the job is the same. We are to leverage our life, our resources, our talents to serving the Lord fearlessly in holiness and righteousness before him. This is what it looks like in John's life. Let's read verses 76 to the end. 
And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Serving the Lord fearlessly in righteousness and holiness for John looked like going before the Lord to prepare his way. John's life was a preaching ministry, a baptizing ministry. We'll see this when we get to chapter 3, Lord willing, next year. For John, it looked like preaching to give knowledge of God's work and the saving of his people from their sins. It looked like pointing people to Jesus. Pointing people to the tender mercy of God that they see in his son. Verse 78 and 79 are some of the most beautiful descriptions of God's mercy in the whole of Scripture. Here, Zechariah describes God's tender mercy like a sunrise that gives light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide their, way in the, guide their feet in the way of peace. It was John's purpose to point to this. Not many of you know, John the Baptist spent most of his life, the best parts of his life in the wilderness, in relative obscurity, growing and waiting for his time. In his early 30s, he came onto the scene and preached and prepared people for Jesus. This was a very short ministry, and then he was killed. And the Lord Jesus called him the greatest man ever born to a woman. He spent most of his life in obscurity. When he showed up on the scene, he pointed people to Jesus, and then he died. And the Bible says, great before the Lord. That's John. What about us? What is the Lord's purpose in showing mercy to us? There's this great line in C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory, where Lewis writes, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. When you've come face to face with the reality of your own sin, and you have felt the agony of the distance between you and your Creator, when you have sat in the black darkness of your own soul, and God has shown His mercy to you, it is like the sun rising in the morning 
that lights up the whole world and warms the coldness of your heart. You see Jesus. And by seeing Jesus, you see everything. By loving Jesus, you love everything. You see everything as it is. You see yourself as his servant, freshly minted with a new purpose. And you can't help but point everything to him. God's tender mercy to Elizabeth gave her a son. She raised who would go on to prepare the way for the Messiah. God's tender mercy to Zechariah was to open his mouth through which he gave praise to God and pointed to the Messiah. And God's tender mercy to you and to me is for the same. To give us a new life. To give us a new voice by which we give praise to God and point to Jesus. This is why God saved you. This is what it means to serve the Lord fearlessly in holiness and righteousness before him. It means to enjoy the beautiful sunrise of God's mercy and to give your life to helping others enjoy it too. It means to open your Bible with another person and to share your joy in Christ with them. It means to hear God's word on Sunday mornings and share it with someone that week. It means doing all that you can to increase your own delight in God and then encourage someone else to do the same. And it may be that God will use your joy in Him, your experience with Him, to cause them to rejoice with you and then to wonder and then to fear and then to talk and then to ponder. And as they do, God may be pleased to open their eyes and cause the sun to rise on their hearts and bring them to faith and joy in Jesus. Let's pray. Blessed be the God of Israel, who has visited us today. We thank you, Lord. In your word, we've seen your purpose in saving us. And what a kindness this is to us, Lord, that we're not left to figure it out on our own. Father, we must admit that we have not pursued this purpose. Rather, we've pursued a million other purposes. We've sought fulfillment in many worthless endeavors. Many of them not sinful, but some of them are. But all of them fall short of making much of Jesus. So Lord, would you forgive us for seeking purpose in something other than Jesus? And would you please give grace to frustrate all of our efforts to find purpose in something other than him? Would you give grace to trace our joy and satisfaction in Jesus, in Jesus alone? 
and give us the fearlessness, the boldness to live before you in holiness and righteousness and to share the rich glories of Jesus with someone else. For Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. If you're believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I can give you this assurance of pardon from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, where we read that we are to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need.